Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Benos Podcast. And today's guest is Coach Will Weaver. He's been a coach on various levels, uh, coaching NCAA basketball at Texas, at Sam Houston State, uh, also at, at the G League level, at the uh, international level in for the Sydney Kings, where he was a head coach, assistant coach with the Australian national team, NBA assistant coach. There's a vast uh, variety of roles that he had throughout his career. And today we talked about a whole bunch of different subjects. Um, obviously, we talked about communication, communication with players as a head coach, as an assistant coach. Uh, we talked about his coaching role um, as a head coach in Sydney and, and which situations he encountered the most. Obviously, we touched a little bit on, on his background, but uh, what I found most interesting is his rules that he sets for his work-life balance and coordinating that with his wife and the path that they chose to support each other. So he gave me some relationship advice in that aspect, but uh, it was fun and games and uh, lots of good information, very good substance, um, very good content for everybody to enjoy. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast. If you really enjoy, please support our cause and um be a Patreon, become a Patreon. Uh, also share this podcast, comment, like it on all social media. I'd appreciate it. And um, we'll continue to grow. Lots of big guests coming up. And I mentioned on this podcast that Coach Lamanis is coming here on as well. So if you have certain questions, don't feel free uh, to contact me and ask questions. Uh, meanwhile, enjoy this episode with Will Weaver. And we're rolling. Will, what's up? Welcome to my little metaverse here. I'm so happy to be here in the flesh. I've uh, enjoyed it, listening to it many times. And let me just say, as we sit here on Friday, the day after the finals, congratulations on the season that you and your organization put together. Remarkable. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh It's still it's still hard to process sometimes, but it's uh, you know like if you if you reflect upon what everything that happened and transpired throughout the season, it's like there's a sense of appreciation, obviously. But like I told you before we went on, there's so many runner-ups that I had to experience in my lifetime that it kind of irks me, you know. Like you're you all like you starting to smile at it a little bit, like man, like when is it when is this championship gonna come? You know, like for me personally, but also for the team as well. So. Um, because we've been to plenty of conference championships since I've been here, and it's been a really uh this this season has been special just because of the the extra run and how everything transpires. So there's more appreciation than hurt, I think. Well, I'm lucky to know several people in that organization. And um, you know, each one of you, of course, has been on your own strange winding path to end up in that place. And that's, of course, the thing I think that can get lost. The Celtics were defeated by the Warriors in six games, right? It's like these sort of big yeah. abstract um, organizations competing against each other when, while that's true, of course, each human, right? Like Marcus Smart, I watched him at Flower Mound Marcus High, or, uh, High School in Texas, Um practice, I don't know, 40 times. I was recruiting their sixth man on their high school team for the college that I worked for at the time. And so I remember him being the winner of all winners in Texas high school basketball, you know, multiple state championships, obviously goes on to Oklahoma State, um, you know, things that were big, big deals, huge news cycle items of him getting into it with the fan during a game and like these kind of things that 
you know, just totally disappear from anyone's aware. No one is even thinking about that, and nor should they be. Um, but I also appreciate now having coached for long enough that all those things are the good stuff. So I'm certain that all of you will take the harness good, block bad from this experience. And um, it, it is worthy of congratulations. So congrats again. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. All those things are building blocks to your career, right? Whether it's coaches or 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 players or everything is it it just ends up being a part of you and and uh that's what builds also ultimate competitors yeah like you persevere you overcome and then you get better you get harder you just kind of um just grind it out over time you know and then um as we did this year we grind it out all the way to the finals and just at the end just kind of ran out of juice it seems like right so it's 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 um i think it's it's very um telling also what's ahead because we've got a good foundation so it should we should we should be keep going upwards from here on up well, you you work in a big brick mansion and of all the mansions on the nba metaphorical block just to think about how many people have carried some of those bricks and the degree to which all of you you know brad's obviously like going from mortaring the bricks to trying to mix the stuff into things that becomes bricks you know like yeah uh, that i think is emblematic of a lot of the unselfishness that exists in the celtics and um i certainly am a fan of it from afar so enough about right. that it's, it's yeah worth it's it. yeah let's, we couldn't breeze over the fact that this is quite an accomplishment absolutely absolutely i appreciate it uh so we're moving on but we also like this is long overdue because we've been We've been. I like to call my 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 basketball uh, compadres friends because this is like, it's a really like a big family. So uh, and we go way back because our national team uh, experiences and battles with the with Australia and where you were a part of uh, go back all the way when we first I think encounter was 2014. So what's the what's the thing that you remember the most before we get into it because i prepare for you four quarters as for all the coaches as i do you know we're going to talk about background coaching uh communication and then some personal things that we're going to go through but from from our battles with the national team what do you remember the most is there one thing that stands out from from battling lithuania <laughs> yes um the truth is it's it feels like 90 of our games were against you And of course, you know, we probably played eight times over the course of six or seven years, but yeah. uh, the amount of days that we resided in the same hotels in friendly China, South America, um, obviously, yeah, Europe all over the place. Um, you, the Lithuanians were our sort of sister country and, um, or maybe brother country is a better analogy because we just, you know, fought like hell. But yeah, yeah. The thing that stands out that I cracks me up to no end was, you know, as the Australian team, we certainly had a identity that we cherished and nurtured about being tough and rugged. And um, we even had a made up word for it, amorphic, where like anything that came our way, we would understand that that's a part of tournament play. And that's a part of, The unexpected is what separates the great teams from the, the good teams, and you couldn't control everything. And a so, amorphic, how did you call it? Amorphic, yeah, being amorphous was how we called it, which I, I don't believe this is a word, uh, at least not in the way that we were using it. Um, but we were playing in Argentina in the warm up for the Rio Olympics, 
And we were set to play you guys one night and play Argentina the next night. And um, in, during the warmups, our guys noticed that there was water pooling on both ends of the court, I think, like coming out of the ceiling. It was raining outside. And our guys threw a fit. You know, they're like, this is ridiculous. Like, they can't put us in danger. We can't. And as we're in the stands, as they're trying to deal with this issue, and several of our NBA players, you know, who, um, of course, you know, you make it to the NBA, you're used to the best of the best. Like there's a level of um, spoiled that we all get, right? Those yeah. who get to be on NBA teams. Um, as I'm in the stands listening to one of our NBA players complain about this, I look down and see the entire Lithuanian team playing one-on-one <laughs> with no dribble limit, <laughs> literally like fifth graders on, in the park, just backing each, just Jonas fucking smashing into Domus, just fucking boom, putting his shoulder in his chest. And in between every point, some poor son of a bitch is out there with a towel trying to control the water. And I'm like, at no point will I ever claim that our group is tougher than their group because I'm watching these guys for the absolute love of it, just destroy each other on literally a ocean of water underneath their feet. It's one of the most remarkable images I have in my entire basketball career. So that's, that's, that goes to your word of morphing, you know, like we're, we're morphed and we use, we use that situation to like, this is a part of, of the whole thing and just morphed it into our whole preparation, but it didn't last long. I remember that we were doing it with our assistant coaches looking at each other, like, Oh my God, like we're have like, it's like 10 days or, two weeks, I think, outside of the Olympics, maybe 10 days, something like that. Yeah. And we're like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be, like, let's see how what how long Jonas Kozlowskis is going to have, like, us doing this. Like, we're looking at each other, like, let's let's uh, let's uh call it a quits. It's enough. Like, we, yeah, we show yeah, yeah. that the players, the players went through a warm-up, then through a practice, like, they're all together. It's like an hour. That's that's fine. So we were, we got lucky. We got we got away there. But we, we the, like, there was a high... Uh, expectation of keeping the players in shape and doing it but that's what also not necessarily that practice but this whole trip to argentina at the end pushed us past our peak at the end like we peaked yeah. we peaked too early in rio and that was one thing i think in in hindsight also coach was saying that that trip to argentina was probably not necessary we should have went to sao paulo which we went after argentina played a friendly tournament there and um it was it was brazil and it was you guys as well i think yeah, yeah. yeah. so so we that's when we where we played because we couldn't play in argentina we played yes. there so, uh, brazil and maybe somebody else i don't remember so and we that was the tournament that we should have done instead of argentina sao paulo then rio and we were like we were already exhausted because we were on the road before that we were in spain playing friendly game in spain against spain already so we were uh, so it was it was a very tough preparation we peaked against Argentina in Rio where we won the, in overtime and then it just kind of sloped sloped down slowly unfortunately and you guys that was my memory that I I remember because we played so many friendly games we played uh, we played well against you in the World Cup in 2014 in the, in, the, in, the, in the group stage but the one that hurt the most and that like I remember we played in in in, in China that was a hurtful one but uh, uh, the one that I remember was the one in on, in in Rio because we were going down we met in the, the quarterfinals, quarterfinals yeah. and there was do or die and that's when i told also everybody i because i've been watching you guys since coach lemanis got there and we played the friendlies you guys came to europe sometimes to play and 
you were peaking at 2016, I felt like. I mean, you guys then still continue with the same core to play also in China, and it was also the same brand of basketball. But in 2016, it felt like you guys deserved the medal. It was just, it was popping. Everything was popping, you know, like the way the way you guys were reading each other, and it was just so hard to scout. And, and spoiler alert for the ones listening, Coach Lemanis will be on here sooner or later as well. We're going to talk about that preparation of building up towards that system because it's it's a really it was a very um special way to scout and prepare for you because there was counters for everything do you remember anything from the lessons you learned from coach lemanis from that from those summers that uh, if you could point out one lesson you know about maybe building a system or or something that you felt like just this very uh um like did you carry on till this day i i have a german word for it but not the english word <laughs> don't brag <laughs> um, absolutely. I think he was exceptional. At that point, he had been with the national program for a number of years, worked for Brett Brown, um, was obviously an incredibly experienced coach in his own right in clubs in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so he, I thought he managed the coordination of those kinds of things quite well. And the way he did it was so collaborative. And, um, you know, some people act like I don't have an ego, like, he truly does not have an ego. Like there's, there's nothing, there's no part of him that is thinks that it's about him in the least. Um, that was reflected in him stepping away to let Brett come in. He thought the team needed a new voice after the world cup in China. Um, but every decision along the road, including the millions that you have to have as a head coach and planning these campaigns and thinking about the tours and, you know, who are we going to invite to the training camps and are we going to, have it be a competition at the training camp, or are we just going to pick the roster before the training camp because of all these time constraints? Um, he handled them all in a composed, analytical, but also very um, communicative way. And he was constantly engaging with Aaron Baines and Del Vadova and Bogut and Patty Mills and Joe Ingles. And I mean, it's really every single guy on the roster had a voice that um, was a part of the culture that he grew. We didn't have team captains as an example in his time because of how strongly he felt that it wasn't one person's job to lead and be the vocal leader. It was everyone's job to see what was needed and be ready to step into any gap. Um, so I think that, yes, it's very, it's a, seems disconnected from the basketball and yet it permeated, of course, the basketball that we played as well. Yeah, like it's ego, egoless basketball. You could truly, truly tell that that really reflected his character on the court. That's that's a good, a really good point. Now, if I think back, that just the ball movement, the sharing, the the reading, and it was very. Uh, I didn't know you guys didn't have a captain, but it make all makes sense that everybody could contribute and and put their their two cents. But you know, sometimes there's also like a level of there's maybe you have to have also self awareness as a player to not talk too much because some guys says, Oh, you let me talk then I'm going to just keep on riffing, you know? And, and there's a, there's a line that I think that also um, self-awareness as well as like common leadership. Uh, there's one to- thing Aussies will do. They'll tell you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> quite happy. That is a, that is a, uh, a gift that is quite happy to speak their mind and straight, you, straight forward going on and like, okay, just throw it to fucking Patty and let him shoot it again. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> That was that was the awareness maybe you were talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so um awareness and balls. So that's uh but so let's go into your background because that's the first quarter I wanted to start with. And and um 
I ask that to everyone because I feel like basketball is a somebody. It's not. It's not a. I think it has a life of its own. And I'm 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 wondering when did basketball find you? Like where was the situation where you first encountered basketball, and and felt like this is this is for me. I didn't realize that it was for me yet, but um, my parents are divorced, and on Wednesdays and every other weekend, I would be with my dad, and it was during the Bulls run that I was a kid watching uh, the channel it was called WGN and it was the Chicago local channel that was broadcast on cable television throughout America. And um, many, many nights I can remember him saying, let's watch the Bulls game because he was, he was a, he loved playing basketball. Um, he played even into his thirties and forties pickup games um, around Austin, Texas, where I was from. And I think anybody that watched those teams, you know, heard the intro song, da, 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 like that still gives me goosebumps to this day when you play in Chicago. And so um, I can remember watching the games. I can remember at breakfast the next day, reading the newspaper and trying to understand what was being written about them. Um, and I could tell that it was a, such a complex and beautiful endlessly unsolvable kind of puzzle um, with real stakes and real pathos. And I hadn't played basketball at that point. I didn't start playing basketball until almost, um, I think really as a, a high school freshman. And so I didn't have any, I was just able to sort of observe it in its own way without putting myself into it yet. And, um, as I, I wasn't a very good player, obviously, because I hadn't played since I was in high school. <laughs> but I, um, the teams that I was a part of at the school that I went to, uh, it was one of the better sports in our school. And so I got to play a tiny role on that team um, all four years that gave me an appreciation for um, and perhaps a perspective of how much work there is to be done for a basketball team to be successful. And I had no aspirations for coaching. I didn't know that that was in my future yet, but um, being a part of that team was deeply meaningful. And I think once I started to reflect and try to plan what my career might be or my interest might be and what I wanted to study, um, it was pretty obvious pretty quickly in that process that being parts of teams was where I felt the most myself. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, like being parts of teams, that's something that like, I grew up with that from, 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 from childhood because it was natural progression. My, both of my parents were athletes, team handball, and my father was basketball. So it, sports was around, but then like the sense of team, the sense of having a tribe and being in a tribe and having like a, a purpose within the tribe is something that like, I think we all feel more valuable and feel like this is like you're doing something productive. You're feeling that you're useful. And then it gives you, it gives you some sort of purpose every day that you're building towards something. And um, at the end of the day, that's what makes you happy. I think so. Uh, I, and everybody finds a different, maybe a tribe, you know, it doesn't have to be a team. It doesn't have to be a sports, but it, it's always some sort of team of, of three, four people or, you know, in, in, in work. And I think, Discovering that, especially sports, we talked about it the other day here. Sports is such a beautiful thing. We just so many people and and everybody is just coming there for the same cause. And 
um, especially the Celtics fans, is just something special to experience in the playoffs. Like I, I, I had to like the pleasure for the first time to experience the playoffs, and then in the finals. And and you have a good contrast of regular season, which is already a a, a one. Um, I don't I don't mind I don't mean to de- defer now to the Celtics again, but it was like just the experience itself was was uh, immersing. Uh, I was I immersed myself in that. Um, and but you just to go back on your coaching once you start to discover that coaching uh, um, was your path and you like to you you wanted to be on teams you had NCAA you had G League experience national team Australian club and Sydney as a head coach NBA uh, several different roles with several different teams how would you on each of that level if you go through each of them how would you define Because coaching is different in each on each level. It's a, there's a different there's a different aspect to each level that maybe plays the main role. So like if you go through each progression, if you go through all those all those leagues that I mentioned, what each one of them? What's what's special about coaching on each one of them? How would you say to differentiate? You're very right, of course, that each one, the context of each one is. Um, so different that it at times almost feels like a different sport, right? And yet from the coach's perspective, to me at least, it is a simple answer always. It is, there is a problem to solve, you know, and it, you can break it down into many small components, um, but it's how can we succeed as a group, right? Like how can we accomplish what we are setting out to accomplish. And so in order to, to do that, the first thing is to figure out, well, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? Um, and then from there, well, who do we want to be a part of this, right? Who do, who do we want to select? Whether we're picking teams for the Australian Boomers or the G League or an NBA team or a club team, like if you know where you're trying to get, then you're trying to select people to help you do that. Um, and it might change over time. You might be trying to achieve different things or a range of things, but without that sort of North star, I think it's very difficult to make all the many faceted, I mean, truly millions of decisions that you make over the course of any given season without the ability to look towards something and say, we are, um, we are, using every decision as a little paddle in the water to get us to our destination. And that has been a, a big key in any kind of success I've had is engaging with the owner of a team, um, the people who are running the team, the head coach, to try to help them give me an answer of what what are we trying to do and what is the rubric for our success? Because then I can work to try to make sure that I'm not wasting time accomplishing something that seems worthy to me or seems one of our players is working on something that you don't actually care about. Um, that I think is largely your role as the head coach, especially understand the vision, emphasize the vision, spread the vision widely, create uh, systems and people resources in order to help accomplish that. And then sort of praise it as this is where we're going here's where we are. This is where we're going. Here's where we are. This is where we're going. Here's where we are. Routine over and over and over again. That is, I think, writ small, the the job of a coach in NCAA, in the G League, in the NBL, in the NBA, no matter where you are. 
So it's it's basically like that's a common denominator. You have to set like the golden north star for every every each team you're on, and each season could be different on the same team as well. Like, as you can be rebuilding or you can be building at a championship level. But do you think let's 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 give an example? If you're if like you're a head coach, you were a head coach with the Sydney Kings. Is it just as an example? It could be somewhere else as well. But from a head coaching experience, do you think it's feasible to develop young players and and be playing for a championship? Is that is that something yes. that's okay. it's very difficult? Yeah, but um, Sydney's actually a great example, and because I know and love the owner so much, and um, I'm very confident in talking openly about the process that led me to get there, and it hinged on this exact idea. You know, I said look, it seems like you're trying to accomplish something very difficult. You're trying to restore one of the great teams in the NBL to a long-term period of dominance. Like that seems to be what I'm hearing you say, but can you please break it down for me? Let's say we agree to work together between that day and the start of training camp. What are the things that you're going to be looking for? Like, What are the things that you're going to there if we accomplish them you're going to say this is a smashing success and then in that first season and then over the course of our first agreement with each other our first contract like what what are the behaviors what are the key performance indicators you know whatever sort of jargon you choose to select um and i thought maybe he you know i was just getting to know him right we'd had a few phone calls i thought might he might equivocate he might say well you know i want to win i just want to win big um But he was very capable of, he sent me a list. He said, I want to fill the pipeline of talent for players and staff. I want to replenish it. I, 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 want, I want super talented individuals with his players and staff as part of the Sydney Kings. Um, I want us to be the most prepared team in the league. And I want it to show to other people how much more prepared we are than um, our opponents. Um, I want the fans that come to our games to feel the degree to which we care about giving ourselves to them, that they really are the center of what we're trying to do. Um, it, that list I printed out and gave to my assistant coaches. I had a copy of it in my office. Um, I referenced it in future jobs and conversations with people because I think it was very clear that he had a vision for where that program was going to go. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they won the NBL championship this season, just what, three years after he sent that email to me, um, you know, I carried a few bricks as a part of that, but the vision was his and the execution of it stemmed from his ability to communicate all the specific things that he knew needed to happen for them to get where they just got. You think that's sustainable? Like how is that sustainable over a longer period of time? Like, I mean, In NBA, there's dynasties, obviously, but there's also is like in in the international play, in club play. You think it's sustainable because the guys, I mean, you have to do an excellent job of scouting, recruiting, and bringing up the next guys because they get bought out or they go to a higher level, and and you basically are are to a certain extent rebuilding, always rebuilding. You know, always like some like two new players, three new players. You're very rarely you bring back the whole team. And it's not comparable to national team because you just got you got contracts, you got changes, yeah. and then you also bring in new new young guys to develop. So it's always a, a new challenge each year. And I, I, I'm thinking how how is it feasible in the long term to build a club that's going to be always successful, always playing for the top? 
Yeah. I mean, self-awareness, as you spoke to earlier, is not just a key in sport, right? Like it's like one of the underlying traits that allows many people to be successful or causes them to fail. Um, so I, I think the first step in, um, after you sort of received the North stars, right. Where, where we're headed, the things that we care about and tried to tier them, right. Tried to rank them in a way that says, all right, yeah, we've got 12 priorities, but they aren't all equal, right. We're, the thing we might care most about is assembling talent, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we also don't care about who they are as human beings or, um, the way that they're going to represent us in front of the fans or all the other kinds of things that we might list your example earlier about competing while developing. Um, I think there is tension there, right? Like there's a finite number of game minutes. And so how you allocate those minutes reflects your priorities largely. Um, if you're playing seven guys and, um, you know, each of them are playing 75 plus percent of the minutes available in those games. And that's going to mean there's just an opportunity cost that the younger players aren't going to get as many of those minutes. And so that doesn't mean that you can't develop the players, but it does mean that it's a different context for that development. And you need some strategies to try to mitigate the degree to which that rotation plan is going to cut off one of the more typical ways that a player grows. Um, So that was one of the slides that I sent him in the presentation after one of our earlier conversations, earliest conversations was here's the tension of these priorities. Um, Here are the ways that I think we can try to mitigate them, but we should not hide from the fact that some of these priorities are going to be in conflict with each other at times. And so that to me shines a light on how important it is to go through the exercise of listing, ranking, communicating routinely about those priorities so that you can identify those conflicts and say, okay, like, are we still, is that still the star we want to head to? Do we need to change our heading? Do we need to slow down? Do we need to speed up? Do we need to sacrifice one of these priorities for three other ones that we care a lot about? That is why I say what I say about what a coach is. A coach's job is to be a problem solver. And um, in order to solve those problems, you got to identify them and be willing to talk about what the problem truly is and be precise about it. Like that's, it goes back to communication, being precise about addressing it. And also I think the key to managing all this, to managing expectations from the management and from the fans and from the staff, from the players, from the agents that are representing the players, there's a whole bunch of dynamics that go into play and it all boils down again to communication, especially if you have to communicate a team goals to the outside, you can't have unrealistic expectations and then hype up to, for, for the fans to have a lot of hope or create this kind of bubble that doesn't, that you are just trying to kind of um, uh, portray one false confidence, maybe, you know, where you, maybe you're, you're, you're didn't, you were not truly honest to yourself, to your club, that your club is not ready to compete at that level, but you're trying to paint this picture that you are, And at the end, you're basically heading for disaster, heading for a crash course. So I think that communication, external communication is probably, if not an X, if not the biggest factor, it's at least an X factor in the whole scheme of things. Would you agree with that? No doubt. And the, you know, the great Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you set up a system in which people's incentives are misaligned, 
you are not going to get the same efficiency that you will if their incentives are aligned. And mm -hmm. so when I worked with an NBA player, um, you know, very early in our relationship with each other, I would try to explain how I saw our incentives being aligned. I would like for you to be very, very rich. And I'm here to help accomplish that, right? Like assuming that was one of the goals that the player had. Tell me what, what drives you? Like, what are you trying to achieve? Truly, no, don't, don't give me the BS um, press conference answer. Like, what do you really, are you doing this for your mom? Are you doing this for your, your child and your wife or your brother or yourself to prove people wrong? Like, what, why are you doing this? I'll tell you my answers, right? Um, and once we've got that, like, great. Well, I'm going to stay up late at night dreaming about hell to help you achieve those things. And it's not just because I'm a good guy that cares about you. Like, it's true that over time, hopefully we'll learn to care for each other, right? We'll spend enough time together and we'll um, do what we say we're going to do and we'll build mutual respect and trust. But um, the main reason I'm going to do that is because I would like to continue working in the NBA. And I would like for you to play so well that my boss recognizes that I have helped in some small way, create an environment where you've been able to grow and succeed. And there's nothing wrong with that, being upfront about those incentives and then being willing to also identify where our incentives might not match up. I think that is a really key part of um, almost any relationship, but certainly a business one, a collegial one where, look, if the general manager asked me my opinion about you, guess what? I'm going to tell them the truth. Even if that means I say things that aren't in your best interest, <laughs> um, I, I imagine you would do the same, right? I, I respect the fact that you should do the same. Um, but in the meantime, let's try to make those conversations, those hypothetical conversations easier for each other, right? Let's try to, let's try to actually help each other. Let's yep. try to identify ways that we're falling short for each other and then fix them so that, um, we aren't in a position to say, yeah, we need to trade this bum or yeah, Weaver's an idiot. We got to get him out of here. So being open of having those conversations and um, being really clear about what, what are we doing and why are we doing it? I think can only build trust and improve your odds of achieving these really difficult things. Yeah, it's like communication internally versus externally, and I think that's that's not not versus, but as well as you know those those two things are important, and it's actually a good segue to communication. Although communication was supposed to be the third quarter, but I'm just gonna flip flop because it was a perfect segue for that. <laughs> and uh, since it's my metaverse, metaverse, I can do whatever I want. You're a professional podcaster, dude. <laughs> not professional, right? You're professional. <laughs> um, so, communication. Uh, that's one thing that I was also curious about when you're saying you're talking to a player and how do you, how would you differentiate communicating with a player as an assistant coach and communicating with a player as a head coach, because there's two different roles that you occupy and there's a certain amount. Some coaches differentiate the dist they in, within the distance. Like they, they want to keep a certain amount of distance as a, as a head coach. I'm, I don't know if I necessarily would do that to a degree, maybe, but I think that as you said, it's still, you have to be yourself and honest and authentic. You know, there's no, like, you can't just put on a front and then be one, one guy, especially if you, if they know you as an assistant, you become a head coach, all of a sudden you're a different person. It can't, they can't be right. Right. So how would you differentiate those two things, communicating as an assistant coach and as a head coach? I think you've nailed um, the, the heart of the matter, which is 
you won't go very far trying to be something you're not. And so my nature, as I've we talked about <laughs> me viewing things through the lens of being a part of a team, um, my friend Luke Longley, who I worked with, not only with the national team, but also with the Sydney Kings, uh, he said, your coaching is very conspiratorial at one point. <laughs> And he's like, and I mean that in a really positive way. Like you're, <laughs> you're always conspiring with the player to try to um, help them, to try to break through something, to identify a weakness in the opponent or a vulnerability in them that could be exploited by the opponent or um, showing vulnerability in yourself in a way that helps them connect with you more deeply. And um, I, I think that's, just how my natural personality manifests itself is, you know, during games, sometimes I don't know what the score is. I don't have a very clear idea of what the score is, especially you know, earlier in the game. And the reason why is because um, it's just like pretty far down the list of things that I'm focused on. I'm focused on what can I do to help next? Like, what can I do to help? And so as a head coach, right, you're, you're, view is a little bit wider and um it's like what can i do to help the team next and of course individuals are a part of that team but as an assistant coach oftentimes your responsibilities are directed towards specific individual players or specific parts of the game and so um, it, for instance with the rockets i focused on this last season alperin shangun kj martin and jay sean tate and so for those three players um, I was in communication with them during games. I was anticipating things that um, perhaps confirmed stuff that we had watched on film previously or talked about previously, or things maybe that went against the the 99% rule of stuff that we established. That this is one of those nights where that's actually not going to work, and it's because of this referee or because of this opponent we're playing. Um, when I was the head coach, I was trying to think more about um, – what substitution can I make? What do I want to slow us down to try to organize something and, and have a play call out of things? Um, is this what I'm watching right now, something that we need to address moving forward? Is it going to keep us from achieving what we're trying to achieve? And so all of those things, um, those areas of focus, them directly from the work that I did to try to understand much like we talked about at the team level, like what are the priorities that we're trying to achieve and how can my behavior right now honor those? And if I'm spending a lot of time worrying about something that's maybe not even on the team priority list or is way down the list, then that feels like a waste of time to me. Um, in Philadelphia, when I worked there, our general manager was really clear in a way that helped, I think, a lot of us, which was we're trying to find a star or help someone become good enough so that they could be traded for someone that could become a star. And that really helped because when we found ourselves caught up in tiny little discussions about players that weren't likely to be traded for someone that could become a star or weren't likely to become stars themselves, it helped redirect us to say, okay, but has anyone talked to Joel in the last, couple of hours like that was that was you know an obvious um thing that we needed to sort of move back up our priority list mm -hmm. uh, so like if when you say you're talking to to players as an assistant coach for example and you you have to 
relay certain information to them or when you are presenting a, a report or a scout to the team, do you have certain methods for or a certain idea of how information can be retained the best in terms of like remembering because there's so much information to be obtained. It has to be filtered out throughout the process, right? So the, the information we give to the players is not necessarily the full amount. You're just filtering so it's easier to kind of build the idea of what they're going to face, what they're going to see. Is there a certain um, method you feel is is mostly effective in, in helping them retain information? I think this area is the area that I have uh, enjoyed the deep, dark hole of obsession over the last five or six years more than any other. And just realizing how far ahead other practitioners were, teachers, um, soccer coaches, you know, all sorts of folks that had studied the modern evidence on the subjects and codified a um, set of principles that are backed by neuroscience. And I, I think that hasn't permeated into basketball to the degree that um, it has some other sports. And I think there's a real edge in coaches working to understand how memory works and you know, identifying memory as the residue of effortful remembering like that is a fundamental paradigm shift that if you don't think of it through those lens, that lens, then you will struggle to create um, the kinds of learning opportunities that help players transfer things from short-term memory into long-term memory. So recall practice is like the gold standard, the number one thing that you're trying to offer up to people all the time. Um, trying to remember something is forming the connections in the brain that will allow you to hold on to it in a sturdy enough pattern that it can exist in perpetuity. And it seems to be unlimited our long-term memory. And so the, the effect of me saying, um, what's that referee's name to one of our players and letting him struggle to try to remember that referee's name is so much more impactful at helping that player eventually know that referee by sight than uh, me saying, Hey, remember that, that referee is Tony brothers. Um, so just that simple change and that way that unravels over the thousands of hours you spend along with each other. And then when you get players to understand how to create those opportunities for themselves and to appreciate that struggling to remember something actually is learning it. Um, then you can get into spacing and interleaving and the ways that um, practice design, scouting reports, um, you know, even the way you look at game film, right? Like in the NBA, games are the practices. <laughs> and yep. so the game spaces and interleaves concepts for you. Um, so that I think is a really helpful way to one, kind of readjust the way we look at games and, and look at them as the learning opportunities that they are. Um, but two, if you're not doing that, then I think you're going to struggle to get enough opportunities for recall practice in your day-to-day -day life um, as an NBA player, NBA coach together in order to make the gains that you need to make. It is, there's a, it's different for every player though, right? Like this, it, 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 there can't be like a common denominator for everybody. It's, I think not a perfect one anyways, but because the attention span is getting shorter, it feels like for years now, it's really important to be as precise and as 
digestible as as possible it can't it can't be you know like the video sessions have to be short and sweet they have to be right to the spot then there's a lot of in, individual sessions you have to have to have to have really precise clips that illustrate exactly the problem that you're trying to address and not just have pointless clips i mean i struggled with that when i was also in the beginning to to put a a, a, a video report together of the whole team especially when we played australia <laughs> because there's so many different situations but you have to get to the core of things and address certain principles that explain it better in term in rule in the sense of rules right so you can't really show 20 plays you got to show maybe the main like three four different situations instead of precise plays that and with a team like yours for example that was running more situational and read and react kind of type of offenses where you maybe address certain angles or certain situations certain screens of how to guard and not really like this this play call we're going to do this this play call we're going to do this you just certainly like at some point the players will not remember everything it's the assistant coach's job to remember those parts and to give the the player on the on the floor immediately the idea of what what he's going to face he's not going to remember if you're going to say uh fist out or whatever he's not going to remember that you know so i think that that it's it, there's a lot of um uh small little rules you have to make for your own team i think and every team is different to to get through to them and to get the information retained as quickly as possible because especially in the nba the turnaround of games is so quickly you have to you know you have to face a lot of different situations and you they have to understand from night to night what's going to come what's coming at them i totally agree that um trying to get through to anyone your audience is a necessary part of communicating, convincing, educating, um, sharing with anyone, right? The barriers that exist, though, sometimes have been created by the good intentions of previous coaches and teachers um, that just happen to be wrong. And one of the ways that that's the case is this idea of like learning styles, that there's a there are kinesthetic learners and there are audio learners and there are visual learners. And mm -hmm. there, just doesn't, there just isn't evidence for this. And mm -hmm. so it's the kind of thing that um, appeals to us because it sort of speaks to our individuality um, and speaks to the very mysterious brain that we are all lucky to get to enjoy and struggle against. Um, but the way the brain holds on to information is the way the brain that all brains hold on to information and that at least neurotypical um, brains. And so for us as coaches, I think we're doing a disservice to our players if we don't understand what modern science has helped us sort of appreciate about our brains that, um, you know, these are neurons and these, this is myelin and this is how these things interact in order to form memories. And, and maybe we'll feel differently about this in five or six years, right? But what we know today as compared to 10 years ago is um, vastly, vastly different. And 10 years before that is just another totally different universe. And so I, I would change the focus from um, the individualization of these strategies to players and instead um, try to meet that player where they're at on their sort of journey to understand learning, frame the stakes, right? This is LeBron James, right? Maybe the smartest basketball player to ever live. Um, what makes him the smartest basketball player? Like what, what are the things that he does? Oh, well, he knows all our plays. He knows all the play calls. Okay, cool. 
would you like to know more of the play calls? Would you like other teams to look at you as one of the smartest players in the league? Do you think that's helped his brand? Um, do you think it would help your brand? Do you think it would make your life easier? Do you think it would help us win games? Each person is going to respond to one of those things more favorably than another. Um, but that, that motivation piece is quite different person to person. The, the mechanisms by which information is retained is not, at least it doesn't seem to be. And so um, I, there's a great tweet earlier today from Doug Lamov um, that I have pulled up here, which I think speaks to your issue of um, the attention spans, which is constantly switching from low stimuli, high value activities to high stimuli, low value activities at the slightest hint of boredom or cognitive challenge teaches your mind to never tolerate an absence of novelty. And that connects to this idea to me, which is that all of us are using, um, are, are offered the chance to use interruptions to break our effortful engagement with things. And effortful engagement is really the key in order to grow your brain, your muscles, like that the effortful engage, engaging in a way that is slightly, not sometimes more than slightly difficult, um, challenging, that is you stress. That is what we're after. And those that are able to learn to notice when they are growing through that challenge, learn to love the challenge. And those that learn to pivot to something else that's not as challenging are put in a really disadvantageous position when they're trying to compete against the world's best at anything. It's, it's I mean, mostly it's referring to social media, probably, you know, like it's, it's the, it's the, um, I heard that expression before. I don't remember who it said, who said it, it's monkey brain, you know, where you jumping from one task to another and you're jumping from one idea to another. And it's always like your, your task, task uh, shifting all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that also, you know, like just takes away from your focus uh, at the, task at hand so you're training uh, your brain right? yes you're training your brain yes. whether you're trying to or not and so it's yep. good to realize that and then choose the things you want to train your brain to do exactly exactly you aren't your brain as much as it seems like you are right like you, you are it's a muscle a, a tool at your disposal it's a muscle it's a it's a muscle of a kind that you i mean not literally but it's a muscle in in, in a metaphorical sense of that you're still training it and um, i love that metaphor because i think because exercise science has been around in a it's not as different today as it was 30 years ago as compared to neuroscience um many of those truths have already been absorbed by players and coaches and so how much stronger will your bicep get if you lift a one kilogram weight a thousand times the answer is not that much stronger um and so why right and how does that relate as a metaphor to what we're trying to do shooting how much better will you get as a jump shooter shooting uncontested slow motion catch and shoot three-pointers yeah a million of them the answer is yeah. not that much better if you're already an nba player and so um what is the do we want more weight do we want someone to be pushing you occasionally while you're lifting the weight do we want you to put the rest of your body in an uncomfortable position do we want somebody to um throw the weight onto you before you start lifting it. Like those are the interventions that we can make that apply to your muscles, apply to your brain and apply to the skills that 
there's some difference between information transfer and motor learning, but much of it is analogous. And I think the sort of weightlifting, conditioning, um, exercise science is often a good place for coaches to start when you're working with an athlete and trying to help them understand how this, how getting better at something uh, works across different areas of sport. So we're going slowly into coaching, and and even though I still had a couple of topics I wanted to go through, but we're progressing very, very, very good. <laughs> so now we're going to go into the coaching quarter, and that's the third quarter for now. Um, and because of your experiences throughout those those the, those levels I talked about, you also had transition periods of roles, different roles: special assistant, assistant coach, head coach, uh, back to assistant coach. And if we just want to, uh, because there's also labels attached to each role, right? Like if you stay within the team and you're progressing from scout to assistant coach to head coach, or you transfer teams, they you still have to establish yourself as an assistant and then transition to a head coach at a different team and then transition back to an assistant coach on a different team again. What did you find yourself struggle with the most, let's say, from assistant coach to head coach? What was the biggest adjustment? And then when you refer, reverted back from being a head coach to an assistant coach at the NBA level, what was the struggle that you found yourself or not, but battling with the most? I remember early on in my time in Long Island, um, one of the earlier sessions, uh, maybe it was the first session that I was uh, running. It was before our sort of training camp started, but we had some guys working out in the gym and we were trying to sort of incorporate some things before we got going. And we were doing something thing that I just thought was terrible. Like it just wasn't playing out the way that we had hoped it would when we sort of talked about what we were going to do that day. I was like, somebody's got to, like, this sucks. We got to stop this. It's like, wait, no, I got to stop this. <laughs> That's my job. Like I, I was like, Hey, stop. Like this ain't it. Like, this is not what we're trying to do. Let me help. Let me help you understand why we're doing this. And um, that difference is really key, right? Like, not only did it help me appreciate the degree to which I needed to be a little bit more, um, I guess, take ownership over what we were doing as the head coach. Oh, back but to also, self-awareness, self-awareness again. Yeah, that's true. And it also shined a light on, I thought, maybe the shortcomings and environments where I had been previously that I had, I had not had that instinct before. Like, it made me want to create the environment as a head coach where player, assistant coach, trainer, that anyone could march onto the court and be like, this is not it. <laughs> like, no way are we, is this what we're trying to achieve? Um, and over the several years that I was a head coach in different contexts, national team, professional, international FIBA competition, G League, um, I'm really proud of how many times we got moments like that where a player said, this is bullshit. Like we're, we're not achieving what we want to achieve with this, what we're doing right here. And that was great. And not even half as enjoyable, or I think it's beneficial as all the times that, you know, Andrew Bogut said, boys, if we keep doing this, we're going to be a fucking problem. Like, that was a session that can get us where we want to go. And, you know, an NBA champion, a first overall draft pick, like, of course it was his role to say that, but Sean Bruce, um, Didi Luzada, Jay Sean Tate, you know, second year professional, like each of them had different moments like that. Daniel Kicker, you know, and played in Europe forever. Like 
each of those guys, when they would, when they felt, when they realized that this was going to be an environment where not only was that encouraged, but it was expected, um, their engagement increased. And that's what I was feeling in that moment, right? My engagement was increasing now as the head coach, because I realized, I, I didn't realize that I wasn't as engaged before. Um, but now as a head coach, I realized that there, there was another gear to go up to where I felt direct ownership over what was going on and responsibility to make sure that it was purposeful and um, along the lines of what we were trying, you know, fo focused in the right direction. Yes, uh, engagement is a good word. And I feel like as an assistant also, you're there's certain, I think like there's a lot of still in Europe, old school disengagement by this is just because the head coaching figure is so dominant and they don't, yeah, they don't, they don't want their assistants to be too engaged because of the, the potential threat, which is, I think it's a, it's an old mentality and it's, it's insecurities basically. And I think that that needs to like, not just Europe. Yeah. I mean, it, it needs to be removed. Like, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah. but, but that's where I saw it the most. But, so it's, and it's, there's complexes, there's insecurity that I think needs to be eradicated by the head coach. And it's, it takes, it takes time. It takes time also for the, like the more, you know, the more knowledge and maybe the achievements also help to feel you secure to make you feel secure and then you allow your assistant coaches to be also more engaged in practices and video sessions to talk and up to a certain degree, obviously, like as long as they're not talking out of their minds, something, something that not supposed to talk about, but <laughs> which I've seen also, but as when you were an assistant coach and you're obviously like you, your mind works like a head coach by talking to you, it's obviously like that you're, you have a head coaching mindset because of the experiences you had. But when did you know as an assistant coach that you were ready to be a head coach? Was there like a certain period that you were like, like, this is the step now, like my, logically the next step. And when you feel like the engagement, you had your own ideas and you've kind of like, was there a moment where you felt like I can't be an assistant coach anymore? No, I, I was always focused on um, choosing jobs for the learning they were going to offer. That was always my focus. And when people said, what do you, what do you want to do? Like what's the kind of role, especially when I joined the NBA, right? There's all these roles. I don't know what any of them are. I don't have any, I have no clue. I'm such an outsider from that world, much the same way as I was from the NCAA, right? I didn't, I didn't play in an NCAA program. So I don't know what the hell a graduate assistant is or a video coordinator or a special assistant to the whatever, like, um, and that was a real asset because I just didn't care about any of that. And so I was, Each time I said, all right, what can I, where can I learn the most? Um, I've been at Texas for a number of years. You know, I, I was a high school coach. Um, I think being around college players, I will learn more. I think I can learn by seeing what that program looks like and the difference of going from a three coach team to a 10 coach team. And the fact that the University of Texas is in my town and I can maybe get access to their summer camps. Maybe I can learn from doing that. Okay. I've been at Texas for four years. I've helped plan recruiting visits. I've helped organize academic transcripts for um, Canadian All-Americans. I've been around Kevin Durant, Diego Augustine, and all these guys. Um, now I want to be an assistant coach that goes and recruits on the road. I want to be an assistant coach. I want to be one of the main guys that has a big voice and helps run player development sessions. And, um, you know, now I, I saw how much I learned from pros. I want to be around pros. Each time that is what I was seeking, not um, the – okay, I, I can't be a graduate assistant anymore or I can't be an assistant coach anymore. It was always, God, being a G League head coach would be such a rich learning experience. God, going to the NBL would be an incredible learning experience. You Coming see growth. Each time, that was the, that was the 
Yeah, it's like one of the only things you can control, I think. Yeah, you see, seeking growth. I, I feel like th- that there's, I read just the quote. I'm not so bad with quotes. I wish I was so good with quotes, but I'm so terribly bad with quotes. Watch hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the, that's the learning, <laughs> learning, learning by doing uh, and engaging my brain in a different way. Is that you know like lessons that you that you that you learn they they don't mean anything un- unless you apply them. And I don't remember who said that in in a certain sense, but you have to be able to like also apply them at the next level and then with the next different role. So essentially, you're learning to have also a bigger role at some point. You know, it's not just like being. A, I, I want to be a lifetime learner, but you also at some point you want to apply those lessons that you've learned sure. in, in those particular points where you see they should be applied. Absolutely. And I will say that there, your career cycles, I think, between opportunities for more learning through observation and more learning through doing. And I felt like Texas had a lot of learning through observation. I thought Sam Houston had a lot of learning through doing. I thought that my years in Philly had a lot of learning through observation, G league head coaching, learning through doing. So I do think that's an appropriate way to um, finding a balance between those things is really good. Cause you say, Ooh, I'm stealing that idea. I'm stealing that idea. I would never do it that way. I would never do it that way. And then you try it and you say, and I know I said, I would never do it that way, but I think I'm about to do it that way. Or <laughs> God, I thought this was going to work like gangbusters and, it did. and so um, getting to run those little AB tests does help you, I think, track towards your own um, sort of eventual upside, whatever that is, as a practitioner. So, and as a head coach, just to go back to on, on this on the coaching part uh, and applying, especially after games, the two questions to ask to ask yourself, and I would like to know what you ask yourself, or is there something you ask yourself? One a after a win. And B after a loss, is there is there a certain Never different? Um, I, I just am obsessed about the sort of process that you're using to judge yourself being the same, no matter what the outcome is, and that you can't allow yourself to get tricked by the variance of anything. You know, luck, shooting, fouls, referees water coming down from the ceiling, you know, you can't get tricked. There's just a lot of variables. And so, um, not as the head coach in particular, what we talked about earlier, you're the one that creates the environment where, um, or is responsible for the environment. And so if you allow yourself to go to those dark places and start to say, um, God, you missed that shot and he's such a coward and he'll never, he never can help us win then you are, that is what you are essentially tacitly rewarding as well. And so if a staff member brings that sort of um, spirit to the conversation, as opposed to, um, you know, we flubbed this, you know, like getting that, getting that play call of that player, like, Will, you're the huddle before that in the game ATO was rushed. Like I, I couldn't understand what you were saying. That might not be, immediately after the game, but we did set in Sydney a goal to every single game, identify something that we did wrong as a coaching staff, and then create a system to make sure that we wouldn't get that wrong again. And I just stole it from Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, like one of the great investors of all time, who um, as soon as an issue came up, you addressed it, you owned up to it, 
I keep calling, you know, I keep forgetting that in FIBA at the quarter, the ball comes in at half court. So I keep drawing these plays as full court ATOs and the fucking ball is at half court. Like, all right, fellas, next time I do that, I got to roll the dice, which was our punishment system. And with Sydney, it was, you know, you had to clean the kitchen, you had to do, <laughs> you had to do 20 push up, like, um, so it was a dice roll, automatic dice roll. I must've done that three or four times. And then I corrected it, but by engaging with it that way, um, I was creating some accountability for myself, but I was also, I think more importantly, showing that that was the, what we were going to reward were people acknowledging their screw ups and then creating a system by which they could improve it. And so it was yeah. like Adam Ford, my assistant, I need the ball. I want you to draw the ball where it is on the court at quarter breaks so that I don't pretend like it's full court because my NBA brain is working. Right. Yeah, it's, it creates a, a system of accountability. And I, I think like leading by example, that's just an example that you, and I want to be, I would, I would want my players to have the same, like admitting to mistakes is a strength, not a weakness. And there's right. still a lot of like, where like, there's so much perfectionism out there where nobody wants to admit to any kind of mistake they did. And we're just all humans. We're not robots. We're, we're making mistakes left and right. Like nobody knows how to do anything. Like everybody's making up parenthood as they go like they're trying to <laughs> i i i haven't i don't have kids i don't know but i i know that people talk about us like oh we're gonna do like this and and reading books and like nobody knows and our parents didn't know what they were doing they were just like doing it you know so i think that admitting to those little mistakes that you do that admitting and showing that you're willing to admit it i think it creates a good culture and i think that acknowledging that any expert practitioner i mean there are so many incredible coaches that I will never stack up to as an individual in a, as an X's and O's person or someone in the way that they interact with the refs or someone that handles the press conference or all the little sub games within the game of being a head coach. Um, you know, the list is longer than I'd like to admit, but of course, you know, Messina, Georgievich, um, on and on and on, right. Saras, your league guys, G League guys, NBA guys, college guys, I know them all too well. There's some really good freaking coaches across this planet. Um, and I also think that it's crazy to ever think that you could do it all yourself. <laughs> yep. You can't. You just can't do it well. You can't do everything well if you do it by yourself. And so what you said earlier about environments where the assistant coaches are maybe reticent to jump in, um, what essentially you're doing is you're just putting a, you're just lowering the ceiling for how good you can be as a coaching staff. And ultimately, I think players recognize that and they might really appreciate your X's and O's wisdom, but they, I think, can understand once they've played more than one place that there is um, more to it. There's, there's levels. Who knows, right? And it's, it's the, getting all these things going together and the synergy and the sort of the, not the virtuous cycles that can be created, the feedback loops in a positive direction are what create great players and create the opportunities to win championships. And uh, the negative feedback loop of us environment being created where the assistant coaches or the players feel nervous to contribute something that they think will help the team. That is, I think its own kind of vicious cycle. Yeah, it's like the 
it, like you said, the more you travel, the more you've been around, like the more you, especially players, the more they go around, it broadens their horizon and they realize that there's levels to everything. Like a rookie coming to Europe is a completely, hopefully, a different mindset, a different idea of basketball five years oh. down the line because he's just experienced different coaches, different cultures, different ideas of doing things. And there's not one truth. There can't be one way of doing things. There's always different ways of doing things on each team because each team changes and you're learning you're learning your team i think from 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 not from scratch necessarily but every year you're learning your team uh again you know to feel to get a feel for them and can i ask you a question Dennis? i know it's your yeah. podcast but you, <laughs> of course at the interview like these incredible coaches that i'm such a fan of from afar is there somebody that you've interviewed on this podcast where um the you you know the other cool part about your job is you see a lot of environments up close and personal um, and can kind of compare and contrast. Is there anybody that you've interviewed where the synergy between them and their coaching staff and maybe their team as a group was, was one of the most impressive parts of them rather than any sort of individual trait that they might've had that made you say, wow, that person's an incredible motivator, incredible communicator, incredible strategist, but it, that it seemed that there was a, um, that, that they had created done their part to create the environment where everyone was pushing together really effectively? Well, I can tell you from experience, not necessarily from, from uh, talking to, to the coaches on the podcast, but from working as well as like, um, if I, if I use the example of Messina when, when working with Messina and having him uh, experience it for the first time of how to be, how to give your staff a voice and how to give everyone accountability responsibilities but yeah. also giving the voice and not and being secure to allowing your staff members to be different than you you want them to be completely different you want them to you want a chameleon in each staff to have something like to avoid group thing basically so i think with messina it was very uh it was prevalent that all the assistants were different and we had my first year for example me as a lithuanian um coach messina as italian Quinn as an American, and then Coach Shakulin as a as a Russian. We had like three, I mean, we had four different mindsets, cultures, backgrounds. You know, you have to really find a way to also communicate, but also absorb information. And you want them to be different. You want them to think different. And yeah. with with those that year, we it, it grew, it grew, and it just it morphed <laughs> like more like again going back to the word morphing. And I think it's it's really relevant for staffs as well. Uh, from the guys that I interviewed, I, I thought that also um, Coach Trinkieri was different in terms of expressing himself, uh, just because of the metaphorical thinking and the, the multicultural background that he has. Um, kind of, I could relate to that a lot because of the different backgrounds in my in my life and the way he expresses himself through metaphorical examples. It's a very specific way of getting through to the players, getting through to the staff and identifying certain issues by painting a different picture. And when you paint a different picture, there's a certain aha effect that comes with it. And you kind of think you, it, it's a different way of learning. You know, you, you, like you said, there's visual learners, but you yeah. also can paint, paint a vision and paint a picture in the, in the, in a word sense, you know, like in a, in a metaphor and that creates a completely different uh, awe. So I think he was—he's different in that sense, also because of talking to him a lot. It, there's a different different way of of how he gets his point across. Um, 
Yeah. So, so I everybody think- go listen to episode 212, Andrea Trinchieri. <laughs> uh, was it 12? You're, you're good. I think. Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to plug your podcast, man. I, I think, I think it was 12. Let me like, I think Messina was number one for sure. That's a, that's a no brainer. I'm going to look it up now just because it's, uh, I should know which episode, um, Trinchieri. You was. had some killers. Yeah, and and we're going to continue to bring him as well. He was 14, actually. He was close. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we move on to the personal part, there was one more question I wanted to ask in in, ter- in the coach's sense, because a lot of coaches also deal with the pressure, head coaches uh, in particular, deal with the pressure, deal with the, with the um, uh, expectations. And you also have to have a strong mindset and character. Have you ever experienced negative self-talk? And if yes, how did you get through that? that uh, aspect of your season for example because there's losing streaks that everybody has to handle and then you starting to blame yourself there's now you you look at you always have to look at yourself first before you look at the players right like the how what did i do wrong how what how could i help my team better and then the trickle down effect and the snowball effect starts starts to take over did you ever experience that and did you get through it so this speaks i guess to my relative um brief head coaching career, two seasons, right? Uh, we went to the finals both year. We led the league in record both years. Um, we had exceptionally successful years from a win-loss standpoint. We were the best defense in the league. Like the difference between us and number two was bigger than the difference between like number two and number seven, I think, in the NBL. Um, we led the league the entire season, never been done before. Um, so I say that not to brag, but just to sort of highlight that I didn't have a lot of opportunities to feel like the world was caving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet within each season, you know, it's, I think the thing that I, I would imagine that by now after coaching for almost this is my 19th year coaching, I'm consistently surprised at how long the season is every year, every year I find myself being like, man, the season is long. Like there are so many things that happen in any season. Um, whether the season is a two month world cup campaign or a nine month NBA finals appearance, um, there's, there's players get hurt. Players get cut. Players are out of the rotation. Players fight their way back into the rotation. Friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. Like it's just really is like, (laughs) um, that the intensity sort of dilates the time experience for everyone. Um, so there were lots of high stake decisions. Um, I can't remember a time where I uh, started to go to a dark place because I thought we weren't going to be good enough or I thought I was going to get fired or one of these kind of things. Um, and I was very intentional about organizing my life in a way that kept my wife and son at the center of it. Um, and so you know, I think many, I know from my peers, this, you know, we had these great catch-ups and clinics and self sort of development talks during COVID, right? With friends around the world and different sports. And that's something I've always enjoyed doing. And you've, I've been lucky enough to do that with you on a couple of continents at a couple of different dinners tables. But <laughs> um, the my friends typically say during the season, I go to just ignore my family, ignore my health, ignore like that's the sort of default position. And I'm so grateful that, uh, of all the gifts I've been given by my mentors, Rick Barnes at Texas, Jason Hooten at San Houston State, Brett Brown in Philadelphia, Kenny Atkinson in Brooklyn, 
I got to, I, I was always with them. I was with those guys all the time <laughs> and they were incredibly gracious with the degree to which they were vulnerable in front of me because on many of those teams, we lost a lot of games. We were in teams with a lot of youth that we were trying to grow into um, as good of players as we could get to. We were trying to find stars, develop stars. Um, and each of those guys had different times of success and, and struggle with their own sort of energy levels and communication ability and the degree to which they're taking care of themselves in terms of sleep and exercise and diet. Um, being next to those guys just highlighted how important it is to not, oh yeah, that's important, right? Like that's not how you, that's not how actually important things get done. Actually important things get done have robust systems around them. So, um, you know, my, when, when I got home, there was a period of time I was unreachable to my staff members with the Sydney Kings because I was spinning, I was picking my son up from daycare or I was walking with my wife on the beach or cooking dinner or going to the grocery store or whatever else. And then after dinner happened, that was the time that I kicked into reviewing the work that my staff had prepared at that time for us to plan practice the next day and send out whatever we were going to send out to the players. And so it took a couple of months to sort of get to that place. But once we got to that place, that was the system. Mm -hmm. We're going to review practice. We're going to prepare the film for the next day. We, we employed a flipped classroom model where we would send film out for guys to look at on their own time as individuals rather than watch it as a group um, in person, in part because of how ineffective I think lectures are largely. Um, so that became our system that ensured I had family time, ensured that I was able to recenter myself, um, reflect on the day and get excited again to prepare for the next day and get all that stuff done that night so that people could then prepare themselves and understand this is going to be the theme of practice. And this is going to be how we, this is the message of the film that we sent out. And this is what we're going to need to cover with the opponent scouting that we're going to do on the court tomorrow. Um, that I feel like is something that can easily get lost in all the priorities that you're trying to achieve is that you, you, it's not enough to say my family is a priority or my health or my exercise. It's like, no, I'm going to work out every single day before I see anybody or before I look at my phone or um, as soon as practice is over or before I go to sleep or whatever it is. Like if it's really important to you making that your rule, um, and supporting it with behaviors that keep it consistent is I think the only way to achieve almost anything. So you're like, it's, there's a lot of things come to mind. Like you're basically setting rules for your own system. You create your own system of uh, communication with the assistant coaches as a head coach, but also you're trying to be cognizant as an assistant coach of what the head coach needs yes. in terms, in terms of being supportive, because I think that's also, again, we bring self-awareness and understanding and empathy for the head coaching position. And especially now after you like you went from head coach to assistant coach, you probably had also a different understanding of what the head coach wants and what the head coach needs. And uh, the the that's what I've learned also that the 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 support system around the head coach is very important to have the right people around you to to really pick you up when you're down and also to keep the keep the levels going, you know, keep the right levels, keep the balance, engage and support each other in, in, in various ways, because essentially it becomes your family. Uh, like you said, you're immersed so much in that. But you also read my mind. We're going into the fourth quarter with the personal 
part and you already talked about what i wanted to talk about the the, the work-life balance of how to do it basically you said it you're creating a system you're shut, shut yourself off you to, to put it as a priority for that day or for that time period the family is a priority and then you you go back to being a coach and create and preparing yourself for the next day for practice uh, as a priority so you 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 chopped it up already <laughs> it's you you you're 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 a true true uh, mind reader uh, but <laughs> another thing that i wanted to touch on in the in the personal aspect was there a sliding door moment in your in your life where you felt like uh like this could have worked out a different way um that you could have went a different direction in in i mean it's one specific moment sure. where like not coaching but something else oh separate from coaching yeah um well i guess a big one was i was an assistant at a division one school called sam houston state as my wife was finishing her medical school training and in america there's a residency that you apply for and you go where you get in it's like you match with a program they rank you you rank programs and where you match is where you get sent um and there's not a lot of flexibility on there's like no flexibility on mm -hmm. what you match into and so um she matched to a place where we had no friends no job prospects um a city we had no familiarity with philadelphia and the decision was am i going to continue to work at sam houston state or am i going to try to go with her and be unemployed and figure out what's next or some sort of half measure maybe where i get a new job where it's you know partially in philadelphia um and i just took it as an opportunity to chase what i really wanted to chase which was being with an MBA program. And I, I knew that the people that worked in the MBA knew things that I wanted to learn. And the, the only real interaction I'd had with them to that point were a few conversations with staffers, um, but really it was just being around players that ended up as MBA players and might come back to Texas from time to time. And I knew I had learned so much more from Kevin Durant and DJ Augustine and Royal Ivy and these guys um, than any player has ever learned from me. So I was like, if I can just be around those guys more, I'm going to learn a ton. And um, so how do I get to that? Well, I don't know. I have a year to figure out how to do that. And so um, it became its own little problem solving exercise to try how to spend this year in a way that gets someone to give me an opportunity to be part of an NBA team. And um, I had lots of different little projects during the year, some advanced scouting, some personnel scouting, um, some projects for different members of different teams. Um, but I got crazy lucky that the general manager and head coach that came to Philadelphia the following year wanted to bring me in and gave me the opportunities that they gave me. Um, but I am so grateful that I chose to stay with my wife in a physical sense, move to a place take that sort of risk, um, such risk, right? Like it's all <laughs> um, because in our relationship, well, it, it, it is, it is a professional risk. It, a it professional is a risk. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which we should all, I think, um, calibrate on being less important than it oftentimes feels like. Yeah. So that dynamic, um, you know, as a physician, she has been chasing something very difficult for a very long time. And I've been chasing something very difficult for a very long time. And so there's been symmetry in how we've been trying to achieve that together. Um, but 
it wasn't a gesture. It wasn't a gesture to go with her to Philadelphia. It was what I thought was best for our team, right? Yeah, yeah. And that sort of mentality we've applied as a team to move to New York, to apply to a fellowship at Columbia, to move to Australia, to move back here to Houston, <laughs> many different times. I have a child together, like many different times we have uh, used that sort of, all right, what's best for our team? And appreciating that one of her graduation speakers, uh, she's had like nine degrees. So like well, one of them, they're you know usually miserable exercises, but eventually you get one speaker who actually is compelling. <laughs> Talked about how work-life balance is nonsense. It's never balanced, right? It's like the idea that some sort of 50-50 seesaw, like, of course not, right? First of all, there's, if you have a spouse, there's two of you. <laughs> so the, the metaphor sort of falls apart there. Um, but when one person is pushing professionally, maybe, or in a period of time that's particularly intense, the other partner is going to have to do things that balance that out, right? From familial sense, maybe from who's cooking dinner, maybe from who's watching the kids. Um, but it's not always, doesn't always have to be like that, right? It could be in certain relationships that might work. Um, but it might be times that this other person is in a period of time that's super intense, studying mm -hmm. for exams, in the NBA playoffs, um, going to the Olympics. And so being sort of open about that as a couple and communicating about, look, this period of time is going to be super intense for us. It's the draft. We're working on a lot of players with super, we have the number one overall pick, whatever it is. Like, let's just acknowledge that. And then let's set up some systems to support that. Should we order out food more? Should we um, have a family visit more often? Should we uh, separate some specific dates where we know we're going to get to go on a date to each with each other to catch up, to make sure we don't lose track of that. Um, you can see like, this is how I think this is like a key to life, at least for me and my family is identify the important stuff, come up with some systems to support that and then make that the expectation. Like that's how I think good outcomes are more likely than um, how you can dodge some of the worst outcomes. Doesn't it? And I like to bring it back full circle. I'm back, on host Dennis. Back to the first part that we talked about creating a North star identifying it, communicating it, not like was a coach and manager, but in a couple's relationship. And then it's, it's a yin and a yang you kind of, you, you, you're, it's, it's like a wave basically, right? Like it's, it's, it's one, one, one hits the other and, and um, one, one is up, the other one is down, but you still support each other and you create systems to achieve those goals together. And that's when like, you can put the metaphor together as a coach within the club as well. If I'm love it, love it. Okay, all right. Let's move How on to it. <laughs> um, ATOs, you ready? Ready. I got five. I'm finishing lineup. Right, we're going for like we're 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 putting the last five together here and putting right. it out on on the court. And it's it's bang bang. We've been chopping Anytime. up for for over an hour. So now it's um uh ga um game time. So uh, one book that impacted you the most. Um, multiple systems, I think it was the title, the Dean Smith book that the forward was written by Dick Spear uh, from the Air Force Academy, but, you know, way ahead of his time, 60s, talking about what is efficient basketball, um, how can you bring a spirit to the game and marry it with a style of play that's variable and difficult to prepare for um, and not be all different, you know, 
spread too thin, trying to do a million different things at once. Hugely impactful as he approached his basketball life and appreciating how he organized his personal life and how civically involved and responsible and the kind of leader that he was. It was, it was say, say the name again, multiple. Dean Smith, Dean Smith, multiple. I think it was called multiple offenses and defenses. I think. Okay. Okay. Uh, best non-basketball Twitter follow. Um, I will say I'll give Doug Lamov some love. Um, I say Doug, D-O. Doug Lamov, L-E-M-O-V. I wrote an incredible book, uh, The Guide to Coach, Teacher's Guide to Coaching, I think it's called. Um, a must read, absolutely pivotal, modern learning science applied to coaching. Um, he's an educator, an educator of educators. Must follow, but I couldn't recommend that book highly enough. Uh, followed, done. Done and dusted. Teach Like a Champion 3.0, Reading Reconsidered. Coach's guide, called the coach's guide to teaching. I'm yeah, coach's right. guide. Coach's guide to teaching. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, next one. Best hack to calm down after a game. Uh, we took an incredible trip to Los Angeles with the Brooklyn Nets and spent time at the Red Bull headquarters there. And they took us out, gave us a surfing lesson. And on the beach afterwards, one of the guys, his real job was a breathing coach. He worked with free divers. He worked with big wave surfers and he did a breathe up with us, which is just a protocol um, where he was like, we're going to teach you how to hold your breath for a long time. Anybody want to try? And we all laid on the sand and Ronnie House Jefferson and Joe Harris and myself and a couple other guys tried it. And, you know, I've scuba dived before, but I didn't have any kind of training over and beyond that. And I'd never focused on trying to hold my breath before. And over the course of 10 minutes, this guy puts us through this breathing protocol um, and helps me hold my breath for over four minutes. And I got done and I was like, how the hell did you do that? Like what sort of voodoo witchcraft, right? Like it's it defied understanding. Um, and I was like, and what else do you know? Right. So then we started talking about how can breathing interact with our anxiety or our anger or whatever sort of feelings that we're feeling and we feel out of control. Um, he's like, well, surely you've been exposed to like, you know, SWAT teams and like special forces. Like you've heard kind of their breathing protocols. I'm like, no, I never heard any of this. And so he taught us a few of these kinds of techniques that are really easy to find online. If you want to like breathing protocol or breathe ups, um, but simple little eight, 12 second things that sometimes involve expelling all the air out of your lungs um, you know, maybe breathing in, holding it, clenching everything super tight and then breathing out again. And oftentimes you know, less than 10 seconds, you can go from a state of agitation or anger or whatever it is to something closer to normal, rational, however normal and rational you get on, on a regular basis. Breathing is, is number one. I, I, I discovered Wim Hof, the Wim Hof method years ago, uh, but then also I got into box breathing. I got into different different types of breathing just for different purposes, but that's also calm you down or like Wim Hof is really to amp you up a little bit combined with a sh cold shower. And there's a lot of hacks in, with, with breathing that you can do. And I, I recommend to, to, for people to find out what they like, what they, whatever fits them. It's not There's not necessarily one truth. So everybody needs to get on breathing methods for their own sake. Uh, fourth one, power forward now for you. That's I mean, went from point guard now to power forward. 
hardest thing you hardest thing you had to overcome to get to where you are today? Uh, well, I'll say I'll take the professional angle. So um, I think that there's a degree to which I'll always feel like an outsider. I wasn't a championship level professional player. Um, I've had many amazing colleagues that were, and I've learned endless amount from them. And I've heard Coach Messina talk about this quite eloquently himself, not being a championship level professional player, um, and that there will always be a degree to which he must remember uh, that he does not know what the player is experiencing in the locker room before a big game um, because he has not lived it. But that the flip side to that is it's such a gift to not assume that you know what that player is experiencing because it's how you experienced it as a player in those championship moments. And so I think each of us has to learn to bring the self-awareness um, to appreciate that each of us are individuals on this strange journey and that we ought to be interacting with each other with a great deal of empathy and should very, very, very rarely bring our past experiences into the equation in a way that we think makes us, in a way that makes us any more confident than just slightly curious as to whether they're having the same experience that we have. And last one, uh, this is a Tim Ferriss question that I ask almost every podcast. What's your favorite failure? So a failure that you can fondly remember and you feel like that's your favorite one that you learn from the most, maybe. I would say that I think very early on in my coaching career, I wanted to try to get around college athletics. And I felt like if I could go work at Texas, this great program that it had, you know, Daniel Gibson and all these guys going to elite eights. Um, and I worked these camps and made connections. And I said, could I please come volunteer? Okay. This is the assistant coach who handles that kind of thing. You should reach out to him. And he called back and he said, well, I'm sorry. No, like there's a lot of guys who want to, be with our program and we'd love getting to know you over these past few months, but we don't have a role for you right now. Um, and during that year, I opened my horizons. I thought about going and being a high school coach. I went back and I lived with my parents for a year and um, poured myself into substitute teaching and reading and um, trying to decide what my coaching journey was going to be and what was the next step of that. And I kept open the possibility that maybe it could be at Texas and it ended up being that way after a year's time, getting to know some more people, a door was open to me and I was able to volunteer with them the following season. But, um, that had, I just been gifted that opportunity at the time that I asked for it. Um, I certainly wouldn't have appreciated it to the degree that I did a year later. And I would have missed out on the experiences I had being a head coach. Um, I was head coach of a, sub varsity team at a high school level that gave me the chance to plan practices and interact with parents and have tough conversations with players. And it gave me a whole different mental model to bring into my time at Texas where I was able to say, Oh, well, this lesson would apply great to that. And um, I'm definitely would steal that if I was a high school coach again, and I definitely wouldn't do that if I was a high school coach, I don't think it applies as well. So just one of the many examples of, of how getting what you want when you want it is, very rarely the best outcome. Very good. 
Uh, Will, I appreciate your time. I, I we've been chopping it up for for a while, and you were very open and transparent, and lots of lots of good stories, lots of very good substance here. So, um, tell everybody how they can find you and contact you if they if they want to, and where where is the best way to reach? You. Don't no yeah. email address, no email address, just social media. <laughs> Twitter is probably best. Um, Coach WCW. And I uh, really appreciate all the incredible stuff that you share on there and that many others have, um, you know, the way that people enrich our game now through that platform is something that I'm really grateful for. And I just convinced an Australian coach the other day to sign up for Twitter so that she could see and benefit from all these kinds of resources that are available to people. So I would certainly encourage any coaches that uh, are holding out to jump on board and contribute in whatever small way they're willing to and benefit from all the other contributions of others. And thank you, Venice, for this is like, this podcast is uh, one of the shining examples of how somebody can share the game in a way that is really meaningful. And so to all your loyal listeners of which I'm one, I would like to say thanks to you too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's, it's much appreciated and we're going strong. We got, YouTube 1,900 subscribers. Keep subscribing, keep liking, keep sharing. And uh, Will, I'll see you soon, hopefully, at some somewhere alive. And like you said, social media is a tool. It depends how you use it. You can you can it can mess with your brain, but it can also really benefit you and 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 uh, in various ways. So keep using I look it. Maybe as a result of your audience connecting with a, a wider set of perhaps European coaches. Um, I have such love and respect and appreciation for European basketball in particular, not only from Australian battles, um, but for the, the creativity and the unique styles that oftentimes get excluded from NBA basketball. And uh, there's no, there's no basketball more fun watching to me than European basketball. So absolutely a chance to connect with a wider set of coaches. They're coming. They're coming at you. Trust me. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, talk to you soon. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Tune in. See you soon again. Much more coming. Bye.